If you have a Bible, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. As we continue in our series of Romans standing before the justice of the peace. Romans chapter 2. This is a courtroom setting. So please, if you will, in a divine sense of the word, try to picture yourself as a defendant in a courtroom. All of you. All of us. Where Paul writes in Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, again, Jew first, also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. When I was a junior in high school, I was a petty thief. I stole about everything. And in fact, I stole the high school graduation ring out of the display cabinet in the school. Somebody saw me. And the head priest the administrator of the school, the Catholic school I went to, he was a very kind man. He came up to me in the middle of the day. That ring was in my pocket. And, he's, and his approach was very kind and almost disarming. He said, Pat, he said, um, apparently a ring has come up missing in our display case. And, you know, in the case that you might know anything about its disappearance, And if you would happen to know who or, you know, what the circumstances were by which it disappeared, 
you might be able to help us out just a little bit. And uh, anyway, uh, if that ring should show up in my, in my box, say, oh, you know, 3 o'clock this afternoon, let's say. Nothing more will be said. Well, I knew when he said the ring had turned up missing, somebody had been ratting on me. There was a witness out there. And my conscience, which was pretty much asleep up until then, really came alive. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. This is sort of a divine courtroom scene. Paul is taking the place of the prosecuting attorney. God himself is the righteous judge. And we are the defendants. We're pleading innocence as much as we possibly can. But the evidence, the evidence is stacking up against us. Worse yet, there are witnesses. The one thing a criminal hates more than anything is when somebody saw what he did, right? The the accusation against you and me is that we are sinners and we have sinned against a holy God. Sin is repugnant to God. He is holy and he cannot look approvingly upon sin, Habakkuk 1.13 says. God can't do that. So those found guilty must pay for their sins unless some other means can be worked out. So you need to know this because to jump ahead in the argument that Paul, this again, this is a courtroom scene. All of these chapters, one, late chapter one through three, it's a courtroom scene. And Paul is driving this point home. Chapter three, verse nine. Here's what he's driving home. What then? Are Look at, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's what Paul is pressing toward. He's taking heathen, he's taking moralist, he's taking Jews, he's taking religionist, he's taking everybody under the sun and showing us in these chapters, guilty. Every one of us. And so... Remember that, because the witnesses in the, in the section we've already looked at last week, if you were with us in Romans 1, 18 through 32, was creation and human nature. Remember that? That which has been made is clearly seen. God has manifested it to them. He's placed a consciousness of himself within all men so that they are, chapter 1, verse 20, without what? Without excuse. So, in this section, Paul adds God's kindnesses to us, as well as a God-given conscience that he has given to us for right and wrong. He also adds the law, but we'll talk about that another time. Everything we study in this section is leading up to the final argument by the prosecuting attorney who now is the Spirit of God coming in next to Paul and saying, you're guilty. The righteous judge agrees, sentence is passed, and the sentence is death. 
The wages of sin is, say it, it's death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's say you're one of the good guys, because I'm thinking there's a lot of good guys in here today. You're not a thief. You're not a murderer. My son is working with our own missionary wannabe. Well, he's actually a missionary, Chad Fincham, in the Eldora Correctional Facility. He'll be preaching there today. And one of the men he's trying to reach is a young man who murdered his mother. But you're not one of them. You haven't killed anybody. Have you ever hated anyone? Have you ever read what Jesus said about hatred? You're not living in gross immorality. You're not sleeping around. You're not cheating other people. You're not cheating on your income tax even, maybe. You feel pretty good about yourself. You're the one Paul's going after here. You consider yourself a pretty good judge of others. You yourself, of course, are, well, (laughs) you're not like them. And in your heart, though you'd never admit this probably openly, but in your heart, you, you come to church, you move through the supermarkets, you walk through the malls, you go into your workplace, and you say in your heart of hearts, if you don't say it in words, you mean it in spirit, you say, I thank you, God, that I am not like them. I go to church. I read my Bible. I hang out with good people, Jesus people. And look at them. I mean, after all. Remember, God is the judge of our hearts. I know you probably think, well, that sounded just like a Pharisee, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And there's nothing. Jesus reserved his greatest condemnation to the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. And yet the standard that the Pharisees set was considered the top of the bar, top drawer. To be called a Pharisee in Bible times would have been a compliment. Not the insult that it has come to represent. Today, when we call somebody a Pharisee, we, we're accusing them of being what? Self-righteous and judgmental, right? And look what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. You're practicing the same things. Ray Stedman writes, isn't it remarkable that when, when others mistreat us, we always think it's the most serious and thing and requires immediate correction but when we mistreat others we we say things like you're making such a big deal out of a little thing why it's so trivial and insignificant the word judges here is it's a common word crino it means to separate to distinguish and the context basically is the only way to determine you know what whether the word has any moral force to it. And in this context, it does. It's, it's talking about comparing in order to place yourself in a better light. Do you ever do that? I do. 
I'm a Pharisee, guilty as charged. He says you do the same thing. That's harsh terminology. And he, notice he says, therefore you are without excuse. That's what he said about the heathen in chapter 1. Now he's talking to you and I, you, the good people, the good guys. You're without excuse. I'm without excuse. Same indictment. Ray Pritchard put it best when he said, their, their sins may be different, but their guilt is the same. When we see awful injustices in the world, you see what's happening over the murderous rampage, 120,000 people murdered and sarined, gassed to death by the Syrian president, Hassad, and, and men who've gone before him. When we see Sudanese people running for their lives, being murdered and raped and being literally dismembered yet kept alive. Closer to home, we see the audacity of politicians who expose themselves with text messages, grope women, run off with sluts to another country, and then come back and seek office again. A judge who gives a, a child rapist 30 days in jail. And then Islamist that are radical, take a military uniform and murder people in different places. And we cry out, why, 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 God? Why would you do this? Why do you allow this? Why don't you squash them? And you know you think that. But again, Stedman is right when he says the question we ought to ask is, quote, why didn't God judge me yesterday when I said that sharp, caustic word that plunged an arrow into my wife's heart? And hurt her so badly. Why didn't he shrivel my hand when I took a pencil and cheated on my income tax? Why didn't he strike me dumb when I was gossiping on the phone this morning, sharing a tidbit that made someone look bad in someone else's eyes? Why didn't God judge that? The God of truth and justice sees the one as well as the other, unquote. Paul says, you really ought to be judging yourself. Larry Osborne just wrote a book that I've been reading, a very convicting book called The Accidental Pharisee. He writes in his book, quote, No one starts out with a desire to become a Pharisee. They're the bad guys. We know that. In the same way, no one ever looks in the mirror and sees a Pharisee. I've never heard anyone describe himself as a Pharisee. I bet you haven't either. The word always describes someone else. My wife celebrated a birthday here the other day, and one of her high school friends, dear to her, sent her this card. It uh, got two ladies here. One said, would you look at those two women over there in 20 years we're going to look just like that. And you open up the card, and the other one's saying, you're looking at a mirror, Marilyn. Paul is saying, it's time you and me, the good guys, start seeing the Pharisee that's in the mirror. 
It's nearly impossible to evaluate ourselves. We almost always, when we evaluate ourselves, we always place ourselves in the best light. Is that true? It's true of me. Is it true of you? You ask me to evaluate my wife? Yeah, I'll do that. Ask me to evaluate the pastoral staff? I can do that, and I can do a pretty good job of it, too. But ask me to evaluate myself? I become proud even while I'm trying to not be proud. A few weeks back, one of the guys on staff made a character judgment of me and had the audacity to do it in front of two other people on staff. And I said, that's not true. And I looked at the other and they went. Ouch. The truth always hurts a little more when it's driven home by witnesses. At those times, I would do well not to defend myself, but to repent and thank God for his goodness in my life, his kindness to me, to bring a servant to reveal a character flaw in my life. But I don't do that all the time. Now, there's some debate as to exactly who Paul is writing in this passage of Scripture. Some think it's just the moralist. Some think it's the moralist and the Jews. One thing, one debate there is no debate of is that these, these individuals have been recipients of the kindness of God. Verse 4 says that. And that kindness, which is intended to lead us to repentance, that means to change our mind, to change our thinking. If you want to know whether or not you've been truly converted, ask whether your thinking's been changed. You're thinking toward God. You're thinking toward men. You're thinking toward this world. You're thinking toward your life. So what am I repenting of, you ask? Well, besides being a very poor judge, you've overlooked the things that God has done. Look what he says there in verse 4. He's been kind. He's shown kindness. He's shown forbearance. He's shown patience. The fact that he's kind means he's good. The fact that he's Shown forbearance means that he tolerates you. Aren't you glad that God tolerates you? Does anybody ever remember the old radio preacher Oliver B. Green? Remember him? When I first came a Christian, I, he was still on the radio. He's been dead for years. But he, they still played his radio. And one day I turned on the radio and he said, Hello, radio listener, this is Oliver B. Green. And you ought to be thankful when you woke up this morning you didn't fall in the pits of hell. And he went into his Bible study. All right, a little in your face. But he was right. It's only by the forbearance of God that you are not in the pits of hell right now. And his patience, God is waiting. It's the same word as he says in 2 Peter. God is patient toward us. He's not willing that you perish, but that all come to repentance. So, when I stood in front of that priest, Father Brunken, he, he had me dead to rights. He knew I stole that ring. That ring was in my pocket. He could have frisked me. I've been ta- I, would, I, would, I could have been booked. But he showed kindness, forbearance, and patience. 
The ring was in the box before 3 o'clock. It led me to repentance. God's kindnesses, his kindness serves not only as a blessing to us, but as a witness against us. You have been a recipient of these things, have you not? I have. So let's say that you refuse, as some of you are right now, you're refusing the kindnesses of God. Well, verse 5 says, then you are treasuring up, you are storing up wrath. It's the same word as the word that Jesus used in Matthew 6. Don't, you know, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Same word. Store up there. In other words, while tender hearts for God are storing up treasures in heaven, hard hearts toward God are storing up wrath in hell. Right now. The section in verses 6 through 11 is, is confusing if you lift it out of its context, but it's not if you see it in the whole. Remember, we're looking at a, a courtroom scene from chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20, and Paul is putting everybody in here. It sounds like he's almost saying if you do good and you're, you, 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 you seek for glory and honor and immortality, you're going to have eternal life. Yes, that is what it says. But if, if, if by that we are to understand that if we are good, moral, upright people, we'll go to heaven, then we are misunderstanding all Paul's entire argument because he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, all together, they've all become together worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so only one the only one who could fulfill the things he's talking about in this section would have to be a perfect man. Hmm. And the last part of this passage of Scripture basically is telling us that judgment is according to works and knowledge. While all men are sinners, sin has to be judged. Judgment in the afterlife will be in accordance with that which you have received and rejected. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, if you've received much, you're accountable for much. So when somebody says to me, well, you know, pastor, what about the heathen who've never heard? I said, what about you? You've heard. You're even more accountable. And he sort of cinches it all up when he repeals, appeals to our conscience. When he says, verse 15, they, the Gentiles who have not the law of God, show that they have a, a, a code in their heart, a consciousness given to them by God. That's why you can go to just about any place on earth and there's some kind of a system of right and wrong. Because God is encoded us with that. It's inbred. I mean, even the Greek poets and philosophers of Paul's day taught this. They said things like, quote, the unwritten and undelible laws of God, of the gods, and another quote, a law which is not written in books but implanted in the heart of men. Now, these weren't Christians, but they understood something about the human condition. 
Greeks and Romans alike discussed this concept amongst themselves, this universal moral code that's in every person. And it's a witness. Creation's a witness. Our conscience is a witness. We're guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. At 16 years of age, even in my unsaved, morally reprobate state of being, spiritually depraved, I had a conscience. And my conscience was no longer excusing me. It was accusing me of my guilt. How kind, how forbearing, how patient of that priest to not come down on me in the moment. I have a few questions I want to give you as we conclude. You can write them down, but don't. Just take them to heart. Number one, do you have a thank you God I'm not like them list? Be honest. Because I know you do. Secondly, have the big sins of others caused you to ignore the little ones in your own life? We love to compare, don't we? We love to judge. We love to put ourselves in the better light. Thirdly, do you recognize that God's kindnesses to you weren't meant to lead you, or rather, were meant to lead you out of self-righteousness and into his righteousness? Did you know that? God is being very kind, the fact that we're even breathing right now, right? so as to lead us to repentance so that we might forsake our own self-righteousness and be clothed by the righteousness which is given to us by his son, the Lord Jesus. Fourth, is there a Pharisee in your mirror? I've seen one in mine many, many times. And finally, for those of you who deem yourself good, you've been raised in a church. You've heard the truth all of your life. Are you storing up treasures in heaven? Or piling up wrath in hell? You know, I don't know about where the theology of that priest was. I know what his church teaches. But he never spoke another word to me about my crime. In fact, every time I saw him, he treated me as kindly as he ever treated me before the act. And say what you will. I saw something of God in him. 
Paul says at the very end, he says in verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There'll be no more dirty little secrets when we stand before Jesus. But if you'll acknowledge your sins and turn them over to God, then God, believing Jesus died and rose again for you personally, placing your faith in him, God will express that kindness in a way you've never experienced, way beyond the general way. And what's more, he'll never remind you of those sins again. Very nice of him. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great place to be. If your conscience is bothering you today, praise God. Thank the Lord for that conscience. And thank God it's alive. Respond in repentance. Place your faith in the one who has leveled all kinds of witnesses against you. You're guilty. Just acknowledge it, and you'll get off. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth about you being just, but you're a justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus. There are witnesses, Lord, we acknowledge, and we acknowledge that we're guilty. We see the Pharisee in the mirror. We've judged other people. We've tried to place ourselves in a good light. We recognize, Lord, that we are hypocrites. And I pray for those, Lord, right now in this room that are piling up wrath in hell because of their impenitent hearts that you would soften their hearts by your Holy Spirit. They would recognize your kindnesses to them, that you're good, that you forbear, that you're patience, that you're patient, and, and yet there's going to come a day that will be done. May they embrace your patience. And thank you with humility and repentance and place their faith in Jesus to be their Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.